it's my desire that we sing psalms in this church. Of course, we're singing spiritual psalms and hymns, and I'd love to add psalms to that. On the way in, I was listening to, have you ever heard of Shane and Shane? They have psalms. They have, uh, I don't know how many psalms they've done, a lot of psalms. And they've done this psalm, Psalm 45, and, and I was listening to that on the way in. This is a love song. It says it right there in the title, and it is. Everything about it is a love song. Uh, the, the, the desire of this poet, who really, I don't know if it's better to think about this poet as one of the sons of Korah. I don't, as you read this, this psalm, the majesty of God is so evident in all of it. Uh, the occasion is difficult, is difficult to settle. In fact, I didn't really see many, uh, usually there's all sorts of arguments why it's this and that and why it's not this and that. Not very many guesses at all. There's a few that stood out. Some believe that this may be written during Ahab's reign or just before Ahab reigned. Others thought Solomon. And I'll tell you why that is as we go through the psalm. But really, the occasion, it just it, uh, transcends any human occasion. Whatever human occasion this was written for, it's gone. And, and the lasting value is what it says about the king. And that's the theme. It's a love song of matrimony to the glorious king, the, the Messiah, who is adorned fit, fittingly in the psalm by everything that surrounds him. Uh, so first we see that there's something unique about the way this psalm is put together. And that, in that we see the inspired poet is self-aware. <laughs> that's, that's unique. There's only, I think, three or four other psalms where this happens. He says, My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. So he, he's telling us the process, you know. We don't get that with many other psalms in the Bible. And then verse 17, if you go down there, I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. So he, whoever is writing this love song really is self-aware that this is a lasting poem. He is a poet. Most scholars believe he is orally giving this poem. He's not writing it down. I'm, I'm a poet speaking this. I'm like a scribe who uses his pen, he says. Probably it was put to, to, wor to words on paper or whatever they used then later. But this poet, this is why I say this is an inspired, a Holy Spirit inspired poet to speak the way he speaks. The psalmist is a flood of joy and he cannot but help overflow to the praise of this king and it's important to notice what is not here there is no name of a king mentioned and that's why I say this whatever this was written for it's very strange that you'd have an historical moment like this a such a great moment such a big moment and this was written in history so it was a historical event but there's no reference to who this refers to other than the king. And I find that that just brings it into this theological reference for us to sort of fall in line with, with the great praise that we ought to render the king of kings. This 
is a psalm of praise and love to the King of Kings. I really think that's how we ought to understand it. Second, the glory of the kingly rule, verses 2 through 5. Notice how he describes the king. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. The physical qualities of the king are also, and maybe primarily, they're descriptive of his rule. Maybe they're primarily not about his physical appearance, but attributes that belong to this king. I don't think there's anything wrong with thinking of our Lord as beautiful. Certainly, his glory is greater and he's more beautiful than anything in creation. And yet, I think the way that he describes him, notice this, verse 2, most handsome, grace is poured upon your lips. This is the way you rule. There is something about a ruler who rules well. You know, it's not uncommon. In fact, it's quite common. America is a very strange uh, nation in the history of the world because we're, we're sort of a resentful nation when it comes to authority, aren't we? We kind of re- resent authority. We don't, like, we make fun of our presidents. But the ones that we admire, we admire greatly. And I think the reason why we always have a little bit of that uh, mm, irreverence in our country is because we seemingly have sides on every issue. You have the right and left, and so if the president's a right or lefty, you can't, yeah, I don't really, you know, he's not for me. Even going back, it used to be more civil, certainly, uh, back in the old days, but definitely where we're going now, it's hard to give a lot of praise to the other side of the aisle, and those divisions are real, and they're there. But this is a time when somebody who is honorable, who led honorably, would be exalted in the eyes of his people. And this is certainly the case about this king. But this king, what is said of him, we can go to the New Testament and see that what is said of him is certainly true of the King of Kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. Most handsome grace is poured upon your lips, verse 2, in Luke 4.22, all spoke well of him, that is Jesus, at this point in his ministry, and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Peter says that there was no guile found in his lips. When people reviled him, he did not revile again. Think of the words of Christ. There's nothing more beautiful than what is true, and that's all he spoke. That's all he said was what was true. He was the most handsome in that he spoke only what was right. Verse 3 of the psalm, your thigh, O mighty one. And this whole picture in verse 3 is of one who is majestic in splendor and glory. The exact same, we, same thing we see about Jesus when he returns in his second coming, Revelation 19, 16. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written. His honor is is inherent in him, inherent in him. King of kings and Lord of lords. 
And on that horse, he rides in majesty, just like it says in the psalm, in your majesty, ride out victoriously. Your majesty, verse 4, victory for the cause of truth, meekness, and righteousness. And Jesus certainly wins that at his second coming. There, at the end of the second coming, there is no more enemy of God left. There is no righteous, unrighteousness left. All sin and all iniquity and all the unrighteousness will be burned up. Everything will be consumed in that day in the fierceness of his wrath. But Christ didn't just win that at his second coming. He also won it at his first. Isaiah 42 prophesies of Christ in verses 3 and 4. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. What is being said there in verse 3 is his tenderness. I think that's what these people said there in in Luke chapter 4 that I just read about. That he spoke so graciously. He was so tender to the people. He wasn't as tender with the false teachers, was he? But he was tender towards the people. I find that, I think the New Testament is, is very clear that pastors need to orient their ministry around this picture we need to basically hold no quarter for false teachers heresy and yet to god's people in our failings my own failings to your failings we need to be tender we should not be domineering we should not be expecting uh you to move in your maturity as a believer according to my (laughs) wisdom you know, and I've seen it where it's, it's an ugly business when pastors step outside the boundaries of their calling as a shepherd in lineage with Christ and his graciousness. Um, I'm trying to think of the Puritan oh, who wrote a, he wrote a book on a bru- the bruised reed on this text in Isaiah and a, a, in the fulfillment of that in Christ. It's just right on the tip of my tongue i can't think of his name but if i think of it i'll let you know oh boy it's right there anyway so he won victory in justice in his humility didn't he verse 4 of isaiah 42 he will not grow faint or be discouraged now this is what's difficult because oftentimes we see the person who is gracious who is kind like christ and we oh that's a push pushover that person's weak that person's but this is what meekness is Now, meekness in the scriptures is somebody who has strength and yet doesn't go around bullying everybody. This is the picture of meekness. And this is how Christ won our salvation. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Now, that is already happening in part now, but that will happen in full, certainly, according to Christ's final victory in his second coming. Verse 4 again of the psalm. Your right hand teach you awesome deeds. I love this. This, I hope I'm understanding this rightly. <laughs> this is idiom or something here. Your right hand teach you awesome. How does our right hand teach us awesome deeds? I was thinking about this. And I think this is what he means. With what is great in you already. What is already great about you, glorify yourself. I think that's what this means. It's already in you. Glorify yourself. Make yourself great in your actions. 
Your right hand teach you awesome deeds. He's speaking of the king acting in a way that shows his glory. It's almost like the king would step back and see himself and say, yes, <laughs> this, is, this is good. And you might say, well, that we can't do that. No, we can't do that. No, <laughs> that's the greatest of sins. That's abhorrent to most unbelievers even. Um, megalomaniac, what do you say? How's the, is that the word? Yeah, somebody who is just full of themselves, but narcissistic. narcissistic, there's another word I'm thinking of too, but for Christ, for God, I love how Jonathan Edwards put this, God would not be good if he didn't desire to display his own glory above everything. And that's what he's saying. Show us how great you are with your own deeds, perhaps more than anything in eternity that will raise our hearts to worship Jesus will be our astonishment of his veiled glory. I was thinking about this. You know, now we cannot, we cannot comprehend how great and glorious he is. And I think in eternity when we see that, it's the astonishment that he ever veiled it that's going to hit us. You, veil, you could veil this glory. <laughs> and, and we're going to be like the psalmist going, show us your glory. You know, and it's every day it's going to be more than enough to suffice for eternity. It's just to know him in all of his glory. And he's had it in himself. Christ, when he was on the earth, he had it in himself. And yet he veiled that glory. I love the picture of Revelation 5 because we see, we see this veiled glory there and we see a picture that's just, to me, it blows my mind. Because nobody comes to the Father. Nobody approaches the throne. No one can open the scroll. Nobody's worthy to do that. I mean, you see in Isaiah 6, the vision of, I think, the Lord high and lifted up there, Christ in John 12, and, and the angels are covering their faces. You can't look at God and live. And then in Revelation 5, you see a lamb. Well, that's what I mean about the veiling of the glory, his glory. How does a lamb come and take the scroll out of the Father's hand? This is what I mean. It's just, the psalmist is just saying, just, just show off. <laughs> to the king show off but when the people see the lamb take that scroll they sing a new song worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals worthy are you for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for god from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priest to our god and they shall reign on the earth perhaps what's more impressive about all of this is that even though he veils his glory, even through the veil, he is seen to be glorious. While he's the lamb, in his humility. He, it's almost like, as, as we read, it's almost like there's another measure of glory given to him in his suffering, in his humility, because that's how he ransomed God's people. And these are his people the seven stars in the hands of Jesus in Revelation 117 those are his churches there in in Revelation 3 
Indeed, Jesus' glory is demonstrated in his works to redeem his people from their sins, as we just read. And contrast this with verse 5, but that contrast is also to the glory of the king. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Here is a king that is able to uplift his own and destroy those who are his enemies. This is the purpose of government in scripture, isn't it? If we were to go look at, in Romans 13, we're, we're taught what the government should look like. The reality of that, that is only Christ will fulfill that perfectly. Only he will. And only he does in his kingdom. Both to the ungodly who will reap the reward of their disobedience and unbelief and those for the godly who will be blessed in his reign. Number three, the God-man's eternal throne. Verses six and seven. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. I skipped a little bit of that verse, didn't I? But you'll remember that this is quoted by the author of the Hebrews as a demonstration of how much greater Jesus is than the angels. Why don't you go there, Hebrews chapter 1. We'll read it there in its entirety. Okay, go start in verse 4, because this is really his point in this, this section. It, he also compares them to Moses later. Not really compares them, but just shows he's greater. But... Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says... Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And this is profound. We know the profundity of this. But the evangelist says explicitly that these verses regard the Son. That is, these verses in this psalm regard the son but of the son he says jesus this regards jesus the father recognizes in this psalm both the deity of the son and the value of his reign notice he says christ's reign is eternal he says your throne O god is forever and it's clear that elohim here in this context means the one true god where Elohim is used elsewhere to describe rulers of the earth, merely the faults and failures of those rulers are evidence. Say Psalm 82, he calls them princes. You are all gods, but you will all die like men, he says. That is in your princely reign. But this God has a forever kingdom that belongs to him, that doesn't fail. Christ's reign is righteous, and to him belongs the worship of the angels, according to Hebrews 1.7, the scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. 
You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Christ reigns as the God-man. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness. You know, I'm reminded that C.S. Lewis, I think it was said, was said that he was surprised that the one attribute we don't see displayed in Christ in his first coming is his, I think he used the term mirth, his joy. And I, I find that profound because he's anointed with the oil of gladness. That is what he is, that is what he is commissioned for, joy. But I think it is understandable when we see, especially in Hebrews chapter 12, 1 and 2, the joy that was set before him was that he would endure the cross. He had to get through the shame. He had to get through the agony. He had to get through the suffering. And the joy that was set before him was the obedience of the Father to do his will sitting down at the right hand of the Father. Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. And now God says, God the Father says to the Son, here, that I have anointed you with the oil of gladness. The Father loves the Son more than we can ever comprehend. And the whole purpose for the glory of the Son and for the joy of the Son, what Christ's suffering, the purpose of God for the Son in his suffering was the joy and the glory of the Son being displayed. And I think we have to wonder what heaven will be like when the Son, when we see what, what is essentially the joy of the Son. <laughs> I mean, I think, I think there are times where we can look in Scripture and we can say Jesus is content, always content. But I think we're going to see the mirth one day. And I think that will be remarkable to, to, with, to behold. So this God is a forever kingdom and is without failing. And the anointed one is called both God, notice there in verse 6, by the Father, and said to relate to the Father as God in verse 7. Therefore, God, your God. And what's profound about this? I was telling Kyle this morning, I come to these texts and I don't want to just preach every sermon as an apologetic for the scriptures. But every sermon could be an apologetic for the scriptures, couldn't they? Because this is, there is no imagination that could contrive this as something that would be true. You know, the mystery of the incarnation is exactly this. The mystery of the incarnation is that God became man and yet continued to be God. And yet in His office as our mediator, reverence God as God while being worshipped as God. <laughs> I mean... This is the way the New Testament speaks about Jesus, but not first. And that's what I want us to see. This is the Old Testament. This is the Old Testament speaking this way. 
One scholar said that this paradox is only consistent with the incarnation. He's an Old Testament uh, scholar. He's passed away now. He said, let's consider this a moment that God is revealing something in this psalm that without the miracle and surprise of the incarnation, this psalm is shrouded in the densest mystery. I mean, how do you make sense of this? There is a king who is a a God-man who also reverences God as God, but who's to be equal with God. It's it's basically John 1.1, isn't it? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. (laughs) And, And there is no understanding it outside of what the New Testament says about the Son of God becoming flesh and dwelling among us. Therefore, the New Testament, the way the New Testament speaks of mysteries is profound. It's right to speak of mysteries such as the incarnation as revelation. Do you hear that? So the incarnation, which is impossible to understand in the fleshly mind, apart from regeneration and new birth, we cannot worship God in that way because we don't know him apart from what the scriptures teach us. We don't agree with these things. But, but that supernatural life that is given to us when we are born again, that soft heart, that spiritual heart, sees this revelation and says, that's true about God. That's true. See, it's the mystery of the incarnation that reveals the truth of the word of God. You see what I, does that help you to understand what I'm saying? So, as believers, we should be encouraged by these truths to say that God promises impossible things. This is impossible. Who comes up with this? Who plans stuff like this and then makes it come to pass? God. No matter what level of mystery, and it's impossible for us to comprehend the incarnation. It's, the, it's part of the incomprehensibility of God when we talk about that. We can understand it. That's the way God has revealed it. We can, we can speak about it in logical and rational terms. We should try hard to do that. And yet in the end, this, the actual incarnation of Jesus, when we look back at what this psalm says teaches us that God is true, even though it's a mystery to us how it's true. God is true because he's revealed himself to be true in these ways. Number four, the adornment of the king, verses eight and nine. Everything that adorns this king agrees with his glory. Verse eight, your your robes are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia from ivory palaces. And this is where people believe that Ahab King Ahab, this had to do with his time because King Ahab had a house made with ivory. 1 Kings 22, 39, if you want to look that up. String instruments make you glad. So seeing the king adorned by these things remind us that God made all things good. These are created things. And these are appropriate for this king, this God-man king. The created things that surround Christ in in this psalm are good things that agree with his glory. And these are created things that agree with his glory. Verse 8 are impersonal things, while verse 9 speaks of personal adornment. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honors, he says. 
the daughters of kings. These are great women. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. This is a place renowned for its gold in the scriptures. Perhaps this is more surprising when we consider that this king was just referred to as God by God himself, that human beings could adorn him appropriately, that things could adorn him appropriately. And of course, this speaks of their being made righteous by him. Everything here in the presence of this king is without sin. The very thing for which he is glorified is his righteousness, his righteous rule, the righteousness of his reign. The picture is that this king is worthy of every good thing that surrounds him. And of these things, we should consider this a psalm of Christ's exaltation. Yes, we can think about Christ's humility, and that's right, but we should also remember the exaltation of Christ. He is worthy of all praise. We've seen Psalm 22. This is a psalm of humility with Christ. Well, this is a psalm of exaltation, Psalm 45. Number five, the glorious bride. Hear, O daughter, and consider, verse 10, and incline your ear. That is, lean in. Lean in. You know, my, I, just, I have one memory of my great-grandfather. He was, I think, 99 when I met him. He was a long-time farmer. He actually died. He was tractoring his field at 101, I think, and he came inside, and he fell, and he bumped his head, and his caretaker didn't come that day for some reason, and, and so that's how he passed away. But I remember meeting him, and this is what he did. Ah! <laughs> Sorry. This is what, ah! He just smoked cigars his whole life, you know, so if you don't want to live to 100, don't smoke cigars. He, that's what he's saying here. Listen. Lean in here. Listen, uh, incline your ear. Forget your people. Now, notice who he's talking to. Oh, daughter, this is the queen. Forget your people in your father's house. This is where people believe that this is uh, the queen, the, the, the daughter of Pharaoh, Solomon and the daughter of Pharaoh. He married Pharaoh's daughter. And he's telling her, that's not your people anymore. That's, Pharaoh's no longer your authority anymore. This king is your king. Listen to him, and the king will desire your beauty. Isn't that something? And this, this is for us, isn't it? We're the bride of Christ. Lean into him. Listen to him. Delight in him. Isn't it crazy to think that Christ loves us? Now, crazy is a bad word, maybe. But this person, this king, loves us. It's hard to comprehend. But what are we to do with somebody who loves us like this? Incline our ears to him. Listen to his word. Aiden, I'm going to have to turn your neck. I'm going to have to put a crank on you and just turn it. I don't know if this is to do with Solomon, perhaps it does. Ahab is hard to believe, considering what a wicked king he is. But this is only rightly speaking in the final analysis of our Lord Jesus Christ. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. Incline your ear. Don't just hear him. Do what he says. Do what he says. And don't we want to? Don't we desire that? 
Don't we desire to please him? Don't you love to please those who are worthy of pleasing? I mean, it's hard to show love sometimes, but sometimes it's easy because the person is so worthy of every bit of your affection, every bit of your best effort, every bit of your leaning in, every bit of your time. Nothing is wasted on this person, and that is this Lord, this King. Revelation 19, 7 and 8 says, Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. The thing about us is this next phrase is so important. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints, but it was granted to her. It's graced to us. We inclining, if we're delighting in the king, if we're bowing to him, give God glory even in that because that's a gift of grace. The bride is honored by the riches because of her husband, or with riches because of her husband in verse 12. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts. This is a very wealthy uh, shipping uh, uh, coastal city. The richest of people, they were synonymous with wealth, Tyre was. It's, it's why when they fell, it was such a, a grand uh, and a remarkable thing when they finally fell. Because they were so wealthy, they were so admired by all the other places around them. As we look last time at the last Psalm 44, we should think of this queen in light of the bride of Christ, the honor of the bride of Christ. You know, it's said in Revelation 21, 26, that the kings of the earth will bring into the city, the new Jerusalem, honor, the honor and the glory of all the nations. God is saving us. And this is something that is is profound that we don't talk about often, but he's saving us to be honored, you know? And, and I think it's, we have to be careful not to be humble where the scriptures don't want us to be. Of course, we don't gain it by our own righteousness or because of who we are, but in that exalted state, when we are conformed to the image of Christ, we will be honorable. We, God will have made us honorable. We will reflect the image of Christ perfectly. Of course, we will lay all those honors back at his feet, won't we? The wedding procession, five and getting there, getting very close here. All glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes she is led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness, they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. Jesus frequently uses the analogy of the wedding party in relationship to the intimate nearness of his people, both in his first and second coming. Both this psalm and Jesus puts his uh, presence and the church in terms of joy. Matthew 9.15, why aren't your disciples uh, fasting? 
He's like, I'm with them. <laughs> what are they missing? What do they lack? <laughs> Why would they fast? I'm here. I'm with them. Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? There's no mourning when you're with Jesus. Like this. Jesus also uses a wedding to warn about those who are unprepared for his return by their rejection of him at his first coming. The opposite of this joy is hell for those who are not included in the wedding feast. And this wedding procession is all about the joy of being near the king. Everything about it, all the people, all the, the bridesmaids, everything about it, the procession, what the, the garments that the, the uh, princess, the king is we- the queen is wearing, all is suited to enter into the presence of the king, because that's where joy is. Is that true of us? That to be with Christ is our great and high desire. Six, the consummation. 16 and 17. In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name, verse 17, we already read this, but I'll read it again. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. Verse 16, we should take these two verses together and understanding what is said in verse 16 and 17 is this is that there is going to be an ongoing profession or procession of the faithful such that forever and ever and ever there will never be a generation that ceases to give glory to this king. And this psalmist is saying, I'm going to make sure of that. <laughs> if you ever need a psalm to express your worship of Christ, mark this psalm as one of those. It's a love song. Sometimes we come to Christ with supplication. We need we have needs. But we also come to him with adoration. He is worthy to be worshiped. I don't know what human king this had to do with. But this forever glory, this remembered name, this nameless king is the king of kings. He's the one that will worship forever. And the one, the only one, we ought to worship. 